गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालय कृष्णाय कृष्णभक्ताय तद्भक्ताय नमो नमः प्रणाम टू ऑल ऑफ यू गुड मॉर्निंग एंड वी आर कंटिन्यू वेलकम विद आवर सीरीज ऑन रैडिकल पर्सनलिज्म Today, meeting number seventeen, and meeting number seven about Guru Tattva. Our last meeting, in connection to this sub-series on Guru Tattva, where we will be speaking today about spiritual bypassing between Guru and disciple. In continuation with the topic of our previous last Tuesday, but as usual, before we will make a brief recap of what we saw last week in our sixth meeting on Guru Tattva. <clears throat> where we talked about codependency versus healthy surrender and we created some contrast beginning by beginning to talked about the ideal relationship between guru and disciple uh before how before accepting themselves they have to get acquainted with each other somehow in one way or another and how the very spirit of that relationship is one of trust affection intimacy confidence peace from bena guru seva in the words of Srila Rupa Goswami mutual trust and affection a relationship with both are uh, learning from each other interestingly needing each other in their own way uh, it's a type of friendship again the word bisrama has to do with that sometimes it is connected to the archetype of the father son relationship which ideally has to mature and converge into a form of friendship while of course the father son pattern remains in some way so similarly guru disciple relationship should naturally grow and uh, unfold into that particular friendly type form of friendship that this relationship is characterized by mm-hmm. in their own way again each serving each other in their own way serving an ideal a higher ideal that both of them have in common a mutual joint project so we continue speaking about <clears throat> Another way of saying the same thing of depicting the ideal pattern for this relationship is to speak about how the duty of the disciple is to be vulnerable and the duty of the guru is to honor that vulnerability. In other words, guru is to nourish the openness uh, of the heart of the disciple and the disciple has to open the heart. The guru has to listen to the disciple's heart to guide that so the disciple can also reach his her own experiences by their own through their, by their own way so to say but through the hand and affectionate guidance of the guru mm. and of course uh if a disciple opens his heart her heart expresses vulnerability if that vulnerability is not properly appreciated honored uh, but actually trampled if you will that can lead to very dysfunctional scenarios and even to different forms of abuse of power mm. uh, if guru doesn't know how to honor mm, the the vulnerability of his disciples probably that person shouldn't be acting as guru would mention because that's a very crucial aspect of their interaction mm-hmm. so the guru disciple relationship is a 50-50% with both parts are giving their 100% but also at the same time especially in the beginning it is expected that the guru will uh, have take more responsibility in the relationship uh, being expected that the guru is more advanced more mature an elder and the disciple may be in just more son like daughter like stages in relation to the father like figure of the guru 
but as much as one can from their particular situation, each of them should be given their 100% to the equation for sure. We also spoke, main title of our talk last week, codependency is not synonymous with uh, healthy surrender. So it's not one and the same, although it may seem the same to the untrained eye. So we spoke how surrender or qualities like obedience, all of which are very desirable and very good, yeah, uh, but all of them are voluntary to keep their charm. They have to remain voluntary. They constitute a free choice. They are not something imposed. They are not something that one expresses with calculation for some ulterior motives. Mm? Or they are not something to express without understanding why I should be expressing this. If I surrender to something I shouldn't be surrendered to, that falls into the category of Rupa Goswami's category of Niyama Graha. Doing something without knowing why I'm doing that, or knowing, doing something that I know I shouldn't be doing that, but despite that I nonetheless do it. Mm. And of course this codependent uh, template can be expressed from the side of the disciple. Mm. One, the disciple may like want, need to be feel different and special, or to receive approve, appro approval from the guru, from the social circle, or the disciple may just be codependent because he wants he wants someone to be responsible for him, so he has not to take any responsibility for himself. Someone who may be thinking for him, uh, someone afraid of being of freedom, basically, mm -hmm. of being an individual with all the personal responsibility it entails. So all those situations which may happen in the beginning of in the, of the disciples neophyte disciples' life can point to a codependent stage, but also a guru can express, show symptoms of codependency. Him or her being in need, needing someone to need him, so to say, or someone with low self-esteem, but needing to feel the savior of someone else, or excessive doses of narcissism, different possibilities are there, both from guru and disciple. Hmm. What to speak if the two of them combine. Hmm. So, of course, in the case of the guru, if the guru is an elder, as he should be ideally, and perceives many codependent disciples count to begin with in the beginning, in their initial stages, the guru can deal with them, can know that, but they, he, the guru, he, she, should know, I'm dealing with codependent pattern here, and I know, I should know how to deal with that. Because if not, again, it can lend to another form of codependence and addiction. Mm -hmm. And in the name of surrender, in the name of all these most beautiful qualities, we may be using the external form of them, surrender, to avoid the very substance of those same qualities. So in the form of surrender, I may be indulging in codependency and so on. So anyhow, some brief words regarding <coughs> what we saw last week. Today, Tuesday, we will, again, as I mentioned, we will go to our last class on the Guru Tattva series, not the last class for Radical Personalism series, but the seventh and last class on uh, the Guru Tattva hmm, point. And today we'll be speaking about spiritual bypassing between Guru and Disciple. So as usual, let's share some brief introduction in relation to the title of today's topic, and we'll continue then unfolding as much as we can. So this is somehow connected to our previous lecture, and today, in, in that, following that line, we will analyze some further possible shortcomings in the relationship between guru and disciple, and also analyzing the potential that this relationship has when uh, not properly conceived. The potential it has to become cultish, or authoritarian, 
or even a celebrity parade, so to say. And also, we will speak about the importance of expressing accountability in the case of any of the parts in the relationship may become implicated in what we may call spiritual bypassing, or basically cheating ourselves under the disguise, in this case of spirituality, which can happen a lot, especially in the context of the guru-disciple relationship. As we mentioned, this is the most beautiful thing, but misread can lead to the most awful things as well. So let me begin by sharing a brief example or a brief, yeah, example idea on this principle of spiritual bypassing between guru and disciple, in this case taken from one book called Spiritual Bypassing, which I highly recommend its reading, very interesting one. So the author says like this, the tricky thing about spiritual bypassing is that it does not always look like spiritual bypassing. For example, if a spiritual teacher is asked by his students about difficulties they are having with integrating their spiritual practice and the demands of intimate relationship, and he provides them only with big picture answers or truisms, waxing eloquently about the finite and the infinite, the nature of the self and so on, then he is engaged in a spiritual bypassing. No matter how articulate and precise his answer may be, for he is, however inadvertently, avoiding dealing directly and relevantly with his students' personal and interpersonal pain, and probably his own as well. Yes, his questioners may benefit somewhat from the overview he is presenting, but they are not getting anything suitable personal from him. The point here is not to avoid a big picture answer, but to provide one that is also a psychologically attuned, personally relevant answer. In spiritual bypassing's realm, conceptual spirituality, more often than not, masquerades as real spirituality. Conceptual or emotionally disconnected spirituality can can be very comforting and safe very easy to trot out, and very easy to use, to rationalize our removal, especially emotionally, from the more difficult aspects of life. So sorry for the long example, but I consider it was a very interesting and accurate one that very clearly depicts one of the possible uh, ways in which spiritual bypassing will be expressed. And of course, the above quote does not refer to a guru at the same time in this connection, having to be one's psychologist, just in case, or one's financial counselor or romantic advisor or whatever, but to, to how sometimes important personal questions on one's inner struggles or one's inner journey have to be addressed personally by the guru. Remember, we are talking here about radical personalism. And not only by resorting to absolute answers or copy-paste formulas, Uh, universal mm, sentences, slogans, one-liners that may not be as specific as 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 sensitive enough to that particular case. Mm. While some gurus may do bypassing by resorting to this method, by invoking absolutes, so to say, in in order to avoid the specificity of each particular case, the disciple may equally do bypassing, as we mentioned, by submitting for example, in this case, to this unhealthy temp- template. 
or to other templates. And so see, since we mentioned other templates, let's then go next to a further, to share some further examples of spiritual bypassing in the next section. <clears throat> so the next section will be called Celebrity Consciousness versus Krishna Consciousness. So I will take some points here from Purnachandra Swami's book Unspoken Obstacles in the Path of Bhakti. Another very recommended reading in this regard. So, as we mentioned previously, victim consciousness in talks of vulnerability, if I'm not mistaken, victim consciousness is actually the exact opposite of Krishna consciousness. Another opposite, another opposite, apart from victim consciousness, of course we are not talking about victim consciousness here, but another opposite will, will, will be called celebrity consciousness, which happens to when followers focus more on the externals, the external features, for example, of a spiritual leader, rather on his actual spirituality, and promote and worship that probably fanatically and blindly. So some of these external features may include ashram, he's a sannyasi, reputation, he's so famous, or whatever, charisma, nationality, um, opulence, material talents, a large following, material education, institutional affiliation or position, and so on. All of this being externals, which actually are not talking about the inner standing of a person. So, in, the, in those cases of celebrity consciousness, such spiritual leaders worship from that place become for the disciples more like pop stars than, than sadhus or to their followers. Mm -hmm. and, and the followers are usually stereoed, stereoed neophytes, basically, who are very easily impressed by externals. Mm -hmm. So focusing on externals in this way tends, uh, it's a delicate thing, may be unavoidable in the beginning, but nonetheless delicate. The guru should know how to deal with that. Because focusing on externals in this way may tend not only to keep our faith nourished for the wrong reasons, hmm? I'm inspired by seeing large amounts of people or money flowing or whatever, not only dangerous for that, to have for having a bad, ill-nourished faith, so to say, instead of Shastriya Strada, but also may bring a breathe, neglect, and disregard for other devotees who are non-celebrities. We, we may just become addicted to worship the rock star models, so to say, of the sado, but whomever doesn't happen to fit into that category, we may even dismiss them or judge them for not being the star we consider they have to be or whatever. And again, these are just a few harmful consequences of this celebrity consciousness. Another one is that a celebrity leader, because again, it may be only coming from a disciple who is worshipping them for the wrong reasons, but what if the leader buys into that? So in that case, a celebrity leader will, will care, care little for any, anyone, error, anyone else, anyone other than his followers, that his celebrity followers, so to say, his potential followers. And the followers will care little for anyone other than his celebrity leader. So both of them will be, quote-unquote, in love with each other, but they will be isolated in a very sectarian bubble of superficial, quote-unquote, love. And this gets, as you may hear the descriptions and the patterns, this gets closer and closer to a cult, we could say, which will be our next section today. But first, let's unpack a little bit this one, celebrity consciousness, since as usual, in these cases, responsibility is not only on the shoulders, again, of the guru, 
who allows this to happen, hopefully not, God forbid, but it can happen, but the responsibility is also on the shoulders of the disciples as well, at least on some degree, depending each particular case and situation, that will be proportionate. So from our side as disciples, <clears throat> of course our duty is to make sure that as much as we can, that whatever we are seeing and feeling in relation to our guru is not a projection uh, out of, that comes out of personal necessities that were not satisfying the past in childhood and so on. Mm -hmm. How much we may be able to realize that, to see that in a beginning stage, that's a different thing. <laughs> but at least we should be con conscious, aware that we need that, that that's a necessity. We need to be alert to those patterns and that will help us not to feel the need for the Guru to become something different of what the Guru should be. Mm -hmm. Because many times we again may join and accept the Guru for the right re wrong reasons. Sorry, we already talked about that in previous classes. Not only to make sure who is the Guru that be, it's to be accepted, but why do we want to accept the Guru, which is our background. His purpose to verse, famous verse from the Gita 434, Tad Bidi, and so on. Srila Prabhupada <clears throat> mentions that in this verse hmm, that describes the ideal interaction between guru and disciple, in this verse both blind following and absurd inquiries are condemned. Hmm? It's a very interesting commentary. Now, we are not here for any celebrity consciousness, any blind following, but also not any absurd inquiries. The question has to come from a place, substantial place. That's the, qual the, the requirement of the disciple. And of course it's easier to worship or to idolize someone than to follow the person. And again, we, are, we already talked about that. One thing is to worship someone externally, another thing is to follow in the footsteps and imbibe the very essence and example. So many times we end up doing that. We end up substituting the messenger for the message, so to say, dismissing the, the, the content and just embracing the container, so to say. So, of course, the messenger, the guru, is worshipable, but not independent, as we already explained, from the fact that the guru embodies the message itself, revelation. He's an embodied form of divine revelation. So we should follow and worship that in the guru, not the guru separate from that. That, that, that becomes tantamount to idolatry. So, therefore, if we, if we want to avoid blind following, hopefully we won't, we should try to actually follow, not to blindly follow, but with eyes wide open, as Srila Maharaj will say, and not perform cheap celebrity worship out of celebrity consciousness. We should learn to think for ourselves gradually. There is one interesting, well-known verse from the Bhagavatam in this regard, 11th Canto, uh, chapter 7, verse 20, for those who would like to research. So the verse says that an, an intelligent person who is expert in perceiving the world around him and in applying sound logic can achieve real benefit through his own intelligence. Mm -hmm. Thus, sometimes one acts as one's own guru. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this is not to do away with parampara or anything, but just speaking about in which direction one as a disciple should evolve in time. Mm -hmm. How one should learn to follow one's guru in such a way that one becomes one's guru in that sense. One knows how to think properly, how to invoke proper criterion and advice 
in certain specific situation and it's not that I need to call or write to my guru at every single case and ask what to do now, what to do here, how to, what to think and so on. In his commentary to this Bhagavad verse, Srila Jiva Goswami mentions that knowledge acquired by one's own observation and intelligence leads one to appreciate the value of the guru. So that's an important point. It's not that, but acquiring knowledge by one's observation, one rejects the guru more and more, one gets far, farther and farther from the guru. That's not the case. He says, proper observation, proper use of one's intelligence, intelligence, sorry, learning makes the disciple increase his or her appreciation or the value of the guru. So this indicates also that the guru must be must be very intelligent because he has to teach practically to such a disciple with logic and reason. Otherwise, while will an intelligent disciple appreciate the guru by using his own intelligence? You follow my point? For, an, for someone using his intelligence and for doing that appreciating the guru means the guru must be instructing in those same terms. And it also, of course, indicates that the guru encourages his disciple to use his own uh, observational skills, intellectual skill, thinking skills. That's part of the guru's project. As Prabhupada said, I want independently thoughtful people as my disciples. Finally, his commentary, Srila Jiva Goswami, says that the word Shreyas, which comes in this Bhagavad verse, uh, indicates that one can advance in life throughout, through sorry, one's own intelligence. So one needs to do something with buddhi. <laughs> So with this, without this commitment, as disciples, again, celebrity consciousness may be closer to us than Krishna consciousness. In celebrity consciousness, we may not be having to think that much, if you will, because we are just worshipping our rock star and doing whatever we are told to do, and that's it. But Krishna consciousness is much more than that, as we are seeing. From the side of the guru, of course, he or she should remember and be reminded, if that's necessary, that being guru, again, it's not a rock star position, a celebrity consciousness, but it's, being guru is not a position in one sense, but it's a seva, it's a service. It's a role of service that one is offering to the community, to the world, to Bhagavan. As Bhagavan himself never assumes to own anybody, interestingly, and he's in the position to do so, he's Shaktiman, <laughs> he can claim rights and copyrights to everyone and everything, but Bhagavan never assumes to own anybody because there cannot be true love without freedom. If I just impose myself and capture you without giving you the choice to, to pick me, we cannot speak about love. So Bhagavan is not claiming that he owns anybody because he wants loving relationship with everyone. So in the same way, the guru, who is ideally Bhagavan's representative, should relate to his disciples from a, from a similar position, not owning them, but serving them not owning them, not demanding, nor even expecting from the disciples even that they should worship them or have faith in them, but have faith in the ideal that, that the Guru should ideally represent. That's a very important difference here. The Guru won't be demanding, worship me, have faith in me, be in love with me, but with whatever is important to me and I'm trying to represent and embody, hopefully you also follow that, embrace that, and follow in love, in love with that. And the two of them, Guru and Disciple, will be working jointly together, as we mentioned, in that mutual project. 
the opposite of this will create basically a narcissistic relationship between guru and disciple. That's not guru, sisya, parampara. That's again celebrity consciousness. It's narcissism. How do you call when a guru, or not necessarily only guru, a person, anyone, when a guru or anyone needs a, a, the people for his own ego and advantage? And the people needs the other one, the preacher, in this case the guru, for their own ego and advantage. How do you describe that? Well, the best word that comes to mind is to describe such a relationship. Both of them need, need each other to nourish their own ego and advantage. We can call it narcissism. Or, of course, codependency, as we talked last week. So again, this is another way of describing this phenomenon of celebrity consciousness. In one way, we are always talking about the same thing from different angles with different words because we have hundreds and thousands of layers and, and degrees of resistance and denial. And I mean, difficult to be free from that. I'm not free from that. So we need hundreds and thousands of ways to speak about the same thing. So some, fortunately, hopefully, some one of them enters. Whether we talk about codependency, spiritual bypassing, celebrity consciousness, narcissism, and so on. And as you can imagine, a guru, of course, also can begin his service as a guru with lots of integrity and sincerity, but as with any within any relationship, tests will come, especially after the honeymoon period. So even if a guru is internally advanced, on some level at least, and he has followers that are serving him because of his actual adhikar and not due to celebrity consciousness, these very gifts that attract people to him, so to say, and to his teaching may subtly, in some cases, not always of course, and insidiously incline the guru toward a glamorous self-image. That can happen, and we should be careful again, not necessarily being only gurus. So, indeed, precisely because of, of the guru's spiritual attainments, the temptation arises to identify with the role of, of whatever, wonder maker, or enlightened teacher, or martyr, or messiah, victim, uh, charismatic leader, in short, God's gift to humanity, basically. Mm. So, it may all begin in a very nice, healthy way, but if we are not careful along the path, it may converge into very undesirable scenarios. Another related drawback in this connection is that a guru can become addicted to the adoration of his followers, and see that adoration as a sign of his own spiritual advancement, mm? and subtly even promote that as the standard. Mm? You follow my point? Mm. The more you are being worshipped, the more people is worshipping you, the more they are confirming how deep and enlightened you are. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And the more you may probably indirectly and consciously be just sub sub promoting that people continue doing that, because they are continuing uh, validating your self-image, who you, how you want to see yourself instead of who you actually are and the need you may need to, the things that you may need to still work on. Therefore, in those cases, the guru won't see any reason to strive and to dive deeper in, in prayer, in practice, in introspection, uh, because that's a very comfortable zone, so to say, comfort zone, and, and, and instead the person will become proud, complacent, and so on. And, of course, the guru has to be on guard in this regard with deep, again, shadow work, prayer, introspection, uh, through which, as we already mentioned, uh, 
uh, one will be humbled, if properly situated, one will be humbled because one will realize that a listening potential, no matter how advanced you are, uh, still one is capable of every evil <laughs> if we are not properly focused, so to say. And, and, and at the same time, uh, and not as great as one may like to think, as others may think also. Hmm? One may not be as incredible as one may like to think. Although some people may be saying that Guru has to remain sober and realize I, I have a potential for evil, for deviation, and also I have a potential, a bright potential for eternal <clears throat> further learning, and there is no limit to that. So I, can't, I cannot ever <clears throat> take a, a too long rest into my so-called greatness of whatever. So this, the followers are not validating again one's inner standing. And having followers, in fact, is not only far from showing our inner standing, but in, in one sense, Mahaprabhu himself said having followers is something that Mahaprabhu includes in the list of items that he rejects. In Sukhshastakam 4, he said, Nadhanam, Nadjanam, Masundarim. So Janam means followers. Knowing the possible ill effects of that. Of course, followers may come. It's not that you just have to kick them out, but you have to deal with them in a way that you do not perceive them as your followers. That will be a nourishing a notion of celebrity consciousness. Similarly, in similar terms, Srila Rupa Goswami say that one should not have many disciples. We know that in Bhaktura Samrita Sindhu. Unless one is capable of dealing with that situation and remain sober. And what's many disciples? That depends on the personal capacity. For some people, uh, one to have one disciple is too much. For some, for, for others, to be a disciple is too much. <laughs> and so on. So everyone has to be honest and sincere and remain in a situation when they can sustain themselves with integrity and honesty. So this can be one of the most difficult tasks to things to deal with. To have followers, or to have, in one case, cheerleaders, we could say, or as I like to put it sometimes, to, to, to deal with an overdose of kijayas. Kijay, 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 gurudev, kijay, moras, kijay, prabhu, kijay, kijay. And subtly you become addicted to that and demand some more and more of that. Sometimes even without deserving it. Mark Twain says, said one famously in this regard, you may know this quote, it is better to deserve honors and not have them mm. than to have them and not deserve them. Mm. Richard Rowe will say, never seek to be undespised in its own Franciscan way. Now, don't run for recognition and position. Mm. Not try, don't try not to be undespised, interestingly put. It's not that we want to be despised, but just don't try to be undespised. Try to not be undespised. Mm. So real praise is not, again, real substantial praise and glorification is not measured by an augmentation of the quantity and volume of the kijais, louder and louder, bigger and bigger in number. But real praise has to do with increasing the sobriety, the depth, uh, the quality of the kijais, not the quantity. Mm. Mm. Not only the quality of the kijais, but the quality of the constructive criticism that we may be giving or receiving. It's all about quality. So in this connection, something that may help, and that 
at least it helps me a lot in my particular situation, whatever I, I may happen to be. <clears throat> but I've seen that it helped a lot to many other devotees and many who serve in the capacity of guru. Something that helps a lot to remain grounded and sober is, and, and somehow sane, <laughs> is to have close intimate relationships with peers, with friends, which are the most difficult relationships to have. In one sense, it's easier to relate with someone who is above us and who is below us, but to relate with someone who is equal to us, that demands a, another type of exposition and one-to-one -on -one -on -one relationship as equals, that sometimes for the ego is too much of a hard pill to swallow. So it's, but it's very crucial to remain sober and focused, to have this sakya, so to say, this type of equanimity, equality in relationship, friendship, intimacy. Mm. One thing is to speak about sakirasa, to speak about friendship, but sometimes we may speak about that, but we may not have any friends actually, which with whom we relate as equals, with whom we expose our heart, we express and experience intimacy. And we may not have brothers and sisters that we allow ourselves to be treated by them as such. Uh, we may don't lose the capacity, and it's delicate, the guru may lose the capacity to relate with brothers and sisters and become only addicted to be treated as guru by everyone, including his own god siblings. And in this case, uh, in opposition to this, if we allow ourselves to be opened with those peer relationships, we will be willing to hear and receive feedback from them. Because again, we can speak tons of sakyakata, so to say, speak about friendship and intimacy and one-on-one -on -one relationships. <clears throat> but it can be that that conversation can also result in a form of spiritual bypassing. We talk about something, not to do something. So we, we talked about that externally so we don't have so we don't admit our unwillingness to have close friends to whom we hold ourselves accountable, for example, and may only surround ourselves by cheerleaders or like relatively immature disciples who only praise us ever always. And therefore we fall praised of what Srila Siddharmaraj will call an intoxication of Batsalya. What does it mean? It means like, for example, a father has his child and his child says, Daddy, you are the best father in the universe. And the father should know, okay, it's okay for my child to say that and feel that, but I shouldn't believe that. There are so many other parents that I don't know and probably are much better than me. But if he becomes addicted and he likes to hear, you are the best of the world, daddy, you are the best of the world, and suddenly a friend of that father comes and starts to talk to him, not saying that, but talking to him as equals of friends, and he will, won't like that. He will reject his friends or brother or sister and just become addicted to being a father and having his child saying, you are the best. Intoxication of Vatsalya. Mm. Let me share with you a, a few words from from Sila Siddharmara, from Sri Guru and His Grace, in relation to, to this point, in relation to, to the dangers of being an Acharya while becoming dependent and partial on, on one's disciples or some of, his, of one's disciples or all of one's disciples and becoming unwilling by, by that partiality, becoming unwilling to hear from one's brothers, sisters, friends, peers. So Srila Siddhamara says, when a guru comes in connection with Vatsalya Rasa, again, this position of being the father, the mood of guardianship over his disciples, that's Vatsalya Rasa here, his friendly relation with the god brothers decreases, 
some special discrimination arises and stealthily he is drawn to his disciples, indifferently neglecting his connection with his God-brothers. This tendency is sure to come. Interestingly, he says, it's sure to come. And it is difficult to keep up the balance. So this is not easy task. The guru should keep pay close attention to deal with that. So, the brothers are neglected and the sons get more attention, the disciples. In this way, the guru becomes partial. When he comes in close connection with his disciples, he has freedom, the guru. He is given an opportunity of absolute mastership. In that position, it is very difficult to keep up his purity because of that temptation. He says it's very difficult. There is the possibility of going down from the plane of Acharya. In fact, the Acharya faces two dangers. The first is partiality. Partiality means full freedom with his disciples. This relationship is also more attractive to the Guru. The second danger is deviation. So, deviation and partiality. These two things can take down the Acharya. These are the two enemies of an Acharya. And one who takes that position must be particularly careful about these things. So again, an extended description of this intoxication of Vatsalya principle where the Guru again, becomes easily tempted with this situation of absolute mastership. And Silasimar says it's very difficult for the guru to not fail in that test, basically. And the tendency will surely come mm, of neglecting brothers, sisters, peers, friends, and just become intoxicated with Vatsalya, mm, addicted by partiality to the disciples mm, and forgetting everything else. Mm. Therefore, a, a genuine guru following the words of Sila Siddharmas, a genuine guru should remain always open to peer review. And he will, uh, and, and the guru should like people, how to say, not I like people that loves me, but I love, I love the people who, who love the same set of values that the guru has, not so much celebrity consciousness again. So in this way, a guru will command respect by that proper example, but the guru should never demand respect, but command by proper behavior. Again, spiritual authority is valuable only if it's used properly. If not, it ends in the category of false, in the category of abuse. Mm -hmm. and so one can get good advice from detached persons who possess wisdom, and then one must make one's own personal decisions in life. Mm -hmm. Both guru and disciple have to follow into that, follow that. Unfortunately, when we have an authoritarian system in the name of Guru Parampara, that won't encourage people hmm, to make their own decisions. Hmm? That will create a whole vicious circle, celebrity consciousness, vicious circle. This template can easily degrade further beyond what we have described till now into an authoritarian system, from celebrity consciousness to authoritarianism. Therefore, we should bear in mind always hmm, what's the difference between actual worship <laughs> deep following, idolatry, and personality cult, for example. So let's, let's next turn there in the next section where we will be talking about the guru-disciple relationship can easily become cultish and authoritarian. We began, again, we, as we mentioned, celebrity consciousness can turn into something cultish, can turn into something authoritarian. 
depending the case. Again, I'm not saying every single situation will follow the same pattern. But again, sometimes it begins in celebrity-like terms. Again, the guru gets attached to that, intoxication of Batsalia, all the situation, and then it may get more cultish and then more authoritarian. So let's contemplate, contemplate this sequence next. From celebrity consciousness to cult, cult something cultish and authoritarianism. So all, of course, there may be other options and nuances in how this will be expressed. And as we also mentioned above, a celebrity leader, so to say, cares little for, for anyone other than his followers or potential followers, and the followers care little for anyone other than their celebrity leader. So again, how far this is from the definition of a cult? What's a cult? What's cultism? That's something that over-separates. It's a very tightly encapsulated, self-obsessed us. No, me and my pop star, me and my celebrity leader, or me the leader and my followers. It's obsessed between with that only limited circle. The rest of existence becomes a distant them. But us is the real thing, so to say. Something more and more isolated. Indeed, followers of any cult, however benigned, benign, it may seem in the beginning, and it may begin as something nice, in, term they, in time they tend to dissolve too much of their identity into group thinking without maintaining a robust, robust sense of discerning individuality. That kind of dissolves and merges into these cultish templates. And as I mentioned, contrary to what we may think, uh, some cults can be relatively nice, if you will, in the beginning, begin as something innocent. But others can develop into a real cult, dangerous one, and be excessively, whatever, destructive, like Johnstown or Nazism or whatever. So the, the range of cultic behavior is wide. Many things can happen. It's enormous, let's say. One, our own ego, in one sense, can arguably be seen as a cult of one. <laughs> Plenty of couples function as a cult of two. Even guru-disciple can be a couple a cultish couple if it's not properly addressed. And of course, various, various religious and political groups and movements are cults of, of many, more than two. Mm. So how to avoid cultism in this case? Mm, that's a good question. So going back to one moment to this verse of the Gita, 434, Tadvini Third Krishna speaks about Pranipat, Pariprashna and Seva, surrender, hum, hum, humble inquiry and, and service, sorry loving service, as the qualities to be exhibited by the student. And of course we have the danger, the danger of inquiry without submission, which is not desirable, but let's also look at the danger of submission without inquiry in order to avoid cultism. Because, again, this is where the cults come from. Many, many gurus are inept, not only in our tradition, of course, so gurus may be inept, and, and the cults will be protecting that. Too much inquiry will expose such gurus' ineptitude, so the cult culture dissuades that. So sometimes it's called a culture of faith, but that actually is the sit. And it's presented as genuine Vedic culture, where there is no place for healthy inquiry, depth, opening of the heart. This type of so-called cultish culture 
emphasizes the importance of submissive surrender, quote-unquote, pranipat, very loudly, very enthusiastically enough to drown out the, the cries of, for help from, for rigorous inquiry, basically, pariprasna. Sometimes we loudly emphasize uh, <clears throat> surrender, but we do not compensate and balance this emphasis on surrender with the idea of proper inquiry. So those who ask too many questions in this type of scenarios or who repeatedly sometimes present the same unanswered questions, but important questions that may have re been repeatedly dismissed to the guru, such people sometimes get ridiculed in this, in this type of cultish scenario, and they may, may feel, to, to feel like something is wrong with them. Why you insist asking this question? Why you are not submissive enough? Stop asking the question, surrender. Although there has been no answer to the questions, and they are valid ones. <laughs> So in this connection, we have the example for, of humility, let's see, and surrendering circular reason. This, this is a classical situation. For example, if someone repeatedly presents a question that needs to be addressed and that needs to be answered by the guru or whoever, some cultish disciples or even the guru in some cases may accuse that person, the inquirer, inquirer sorry, of not being humble enough or surrender enough due to insisting or presenting some necessary question. And of course, if someone accuses in such a cultish scenario, someone accuses you of being, you are not humble enough. You say, no, I'm humble enough. Of course, they will say, okay, that proves that you are not humble enough. And if you acknowledge, yeah, you are right, I'm not humble enough, they will say, oh, you see, we are right, he's not humble enough. So this circular reason, reasoning. So similarly, if, if, if such cultish followers so to say, accuse someone who is inquiring from a proper place, accusing you of, you have excessive pratishta. And if you say, yes, you are right, I have excessive pratishta, or I have pratishta, because who is free from pratishta? <laughs> and even if you're free from pratishta, you shouldn't say, I'm free from pratishta. You shouldn't say, I don't have a problem with pratishta. That's not very much uh, representative of someone who is free from pratishta. But the point is, if someone's accusing you in such a situation, you have pratishta, you say, uh, Yes, they have. They will feel, okay, we are validated. He accepted our accusation. He has pratista. Or if you say, I, you don't have pratista, uh, they will say, oh, that's a symptom of pratista. You are in denial of pratista. You're in denial of reality. So sometimes this vicious circular reasoning is presented in this <clears throat> cultish templates. And yes, of course, we, we can already feel how from this cultish scenario we are entering uh, a different a scenario that will come from that, but it's a related one, which is authoritarianism, or more, more specifically what Eric Fromm calls authoritarian religion. So in, in authoritarian religion, the subjective experience of the participants is that of subordinating themselves in obedience, reverence, and worship to higher power. That's the experience, subjective experience you will have in such a scenario. And the basic reason for that surrender will be not the moral quality or of the authority or the love and justice the authority displays that makes the followers want to surrender, but that the authority has power over them. Authoritarian religion, which of course, similar pattern found in other totalitarian regimes and so on. <clears throat> so in this system of authoritarian religion, when you are surrendering because of the power of the authority, the foremost sin 
is disobedience, basically, to go against that higher power. And of course, all of this takes different forms of spiritual bullying and regressive behavior. If someone is seen to be disobedient in such a dysfunctional system. So in authoritarian religions, uh, the positive, or the religious systems, we could say, because it's not that the religions are intrinsically authoritarian, but they can show themselves in those patterns, the position of the leader is overemphasized. It's not that you, you cannot emphasize that, it's okay, but overemphasized. And the individual diminishes himself, herself, becoming more and more deprived, empty, and poor. This leads to them being further alienated from themselves. And the size of the leader increases and increases and increases, and everyone else has to become less and less. So those members naturally intensify their supplication and surrender, those followers, to their guru. Naturally, by doing that, they will feel even more deprived, more empty, and more poor. Eric Fromm says something interesting in this regard. <clears throat> Let me share that with you. He says, a cycle is set in motion. Fear and despair followed by worship and supplication, back and forth. All this guilt and self-loathing leads to a variety of neurotic symptoms. That's why many persons who experienced authoritarian dynamics in their religion upon undergoing psychoanalysis quit the religion. It was not because psychoanalysis set them at odds with religion. Rather, they came to realize that authoritarian religion had an unhealthy grip on them, and by therapy, they were able to get free. Instead of empowering them to deal with the world, authoritarian religion reduced them to fear and trembling. It caused them to shrink away from the world and themselves. End of the quote. So, of course, the real question here is, can we live in such a way that people don't need to be afraid of us? And, of course, an authoritarian system will reply, no, that's not healthy. <laughs> fear is a necessity for these systems. In fact, some say that fear, the four words, F-E-A-R, is merely an acronym for false evidence appearing real. Fear. <laughs> so it has to appear real to somehow keep the system working, basically. This authoritarian regime, so to say. And when religion becomes an organizational system, as it usually does, it will reward fear because it offers controls, offers control to those in management, basically. So if you fear, you surrender, you obey, you give me power and control, so I congratulate you, I, I say nice things to you, I offer a position to you, but actually only so you can continue surrendering yourself in that toxic manner. Therefore, this vicious circle will go until we thrive. A healthy skepticism, so to say, there is a healthy way for that. So that our spiritual and critical faculties can beneficially coexist. Spiritual, critical faculties, thinking, healthy skepticism. Srila Prabhupada confirms this in, in a lecture that he gave in New York, August 17, 1966, if you want to uh, research. He says, not that you have to submit yourself blindly. Although your spiritual master may be self-realized and experienced in the absolute truth, still you have to question. You have to understand from him all critical points by your intelligent questions. 
that is allowed. Mm -hmm. So here we see how Prabhupada is not promoting any type of blind following, any type of authoritarian regime, celebrity consciousness, cultish templates, and so on. There is place for the disciple to question, think critically, which is a duty and a commitment and responsibility. So what Prabhupada is sharing is the exact opposite of authoritarian religion. This exact opposite is called also by Egri from like a humanitarian religion, or in our known in our own terms, radical personalism, which is a stance when we become basically unexploitable, unempowered, and empowered instead of disempowered and abused. <clears throat> So, of course, some of, of us, due to unresolved past trauma, who is free from that, may still endeavor to appease a guru or any authority figure in our lives who may be angry, punitive, and even violent in his reaction. Still, we may be trying to appease them due to some unresolved stuff. Many of us still operate this way, especially if we had an angry or abusive parent. So you keep that template in your mind, don't want daddy to be angry and appease, try to appease everyone. And people respond to this kind of template because it fits their own storyline. So if we are fully engrossed and convinced of our storyline, we'll continue perpetrating that. Or some people go even worse in the name of harmony. When there is abuse, when there is a clear deviation or whatever, they compartmentalize the guru and say, okay, yeah, I know that Gurudev did this, which is totally wrong and bad, but I somehow choose to remain inspired with the philosophy that he's given, although his example is not in line with what he's sharing. So they're kind of divide and compartmentalize while not dealing with other issues they disagree with. So again, we need to acknowledge it and take personal responsibility for our choices in this matter as disciples <clears throat> and as gurus. And needless to say, before concluding this section, of course, it makes me sad to see so often the authoritarian dynamics just described uh, being quite operative in our Gaudiya community at present, here and there. And unfortunately, many gurus in our tradition promote that form of impersonalism, authoritarian religion, celebrity consciousness through their authoritarianism, instead of fostering Bisram Ben and Guru Seva, instead of fostering real... <clears throat> intimate interaction and real individuation in their own followers. This, instead of pushing their disciples to become persons, so to say. So yes, it's time for a paradigmatic holy shift as we have been talking about before. So let's move now next to the last section of our talk today, where we will analyze how a guru can express different forms of accountability in case of failing to some of the above scenarios of celebrity consciousness, cultism, and authoritarianism. So next section will be how a guru can express accountability with seniors, peers, and even students. So as we mentioned at the end of our class on the, whether the guru is fallible or infallible, I think that was the second one. In the case one guru misbehaves in one form or another, there's always place for healthy acknowledgement of that. And as there should be also place for the guru holding himself accountable to his seniors, which is he's always recommended to have as guru, or to his peers, as we already mentioned, this relationship with equals is not to fall 
into intoxication of Vatsalya. But even a guru can hold himself accountable to his students in some particular cases, in some particular way, each in its own way, of course, with seniors, peers, and, and juniors. But somehow the template should be in place. That door should be open. Accountability. Hmm. However, if a guru does not have any seniors with whom to express accountability, it can happen if the guru is quite senior himself, herself, and he does not have any peers who can tell him some of these things as equals and in confidence. It can happen, but not so much as with seniors, so it should happen. <laughs> but probably the point is if the guru doesn't have any of this, or is not willing to have any of this, probably the guru won't be willing to hold himself accountable and admit any shortcoming to his students, to juniors either. And in that case, of course, the guru remains in a very dangerous bubble <clears throat> where basically nobody is allowed to offer any feedback to that person. And he's only surrounded again by cheerleaders, intoxication of Batsali again. So a guru is ideally an elder, a mature, integrated individual. And uh, mature individuals do not resent correction. That's important to understand because mature individuals identify more with their long-range selves, which will profit from such correction, constructive criticism. They identify more with that, with all that they will be by that, than with the momentary self that it being advised in the present moment. So in relation to, to many of the potential shortcomings that may come in, in the guru-disciple relationship, I will say that especially in our time, the bottom line is accountability. And while we somehow recognized hierarchical or vertical accountability, we have almost no emphasis sometimes in our tradition on lateral accountability to one another. Again, the emphasis on peers, not only for the guru with his own peers, of course, but for us with our own peers. And as we mentioned, even to be open to be corrected by juniors, whatever we may happen to be ourselves. Let me share an interesting quote in this connection by Srila Bhaktivinoda Thakur from Sri Chaitanya Sikshamrita 2.2. In this connection, he says, It is not that one should follow unreasonable instructions from one's guru. At the same time, one should not express hatred towards the guru by using harsh words and behaving in an insulting manner. One should try to check one's guru from imparting unreasonable instruction by one's sweet words, humility, and by humbly reminding him about his conduct and instruction in an appropriate time. So this verse is more connected to a Kola Guru, not necessarily to a Diksha or Siksha Guru, but it's somehow applicable to the relationship between Guru and Disciple we have been discussing about, very similar to what Narahari says in his Krishna Bhajanambhartan about how a disciple should address privately the Guru if the Guru is doing something not very correct and so on. So here we have an example <clears throat> of the guru being somehow corrected by his student. And of course, the guru being willing, holding himself accountable to that. So of course, this refers to a case when the guru is imparting unreasonable instructions according to Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And we need to draw a line of what's reasonable and what is not reasonable, since if not, we may be opening the door for abuse. If whatever comes from that one place, it's okay. We may take something unreasonable for reasonable and vice versa. Indeed, the word unreasonable here may not necessarily imply some sort of deviation on the part of the guru, although this may also happen, but maybe also, um, how to say, some, refer to something unreasonable in terms of place, 
time and circumstance, which shouldn't compromise the sadhu's inner standing in those particular cases. It's another form of unreasonability, so to say. Or unreasonable can mean also that in some cases the guru didn't say anything unreasonable, but it may sound unreasonable to the disciple, and therefore the student, the disciple, must ask the guru about that to gain further understanding and allow that instruction instruction to go from unreasonable to perfectly reasonable, ideally. And I'm saying this because also, again, as we already, say, already said, in many cases, the disciples will accept things that the guru said that are actually reasonable, but the disciples are considering, do not understand what's going, what's coming from the guru, and they consider what's coming from the guru unreasonable. They cannot understand it in their own understanding, but they don't dare to express that they don't understand. They don't dare to express their actual thoughts, doubts, opinions, although that's a part of the ideal exchange between guru and disciple. Again, that's part of the responsibility of us as students. And needless to say, the guru has to act in such a way to inspire such trust and openness, of course, in the disciple for questioning whatever they need to question, to ask about. Because if not, again, we are promoting a culture with placing these kinds of doubts before the guru is seen, seen as a lack of faith. What are you asking about? You shouldn't be asking about that. You shouldn't be doubting, whatever. You should understand what's going on. And of, and of course, since people do not want to be seen as someone lacking faith, sometimes people swallow their doubts. They have questions, but they are told to swallow them so they don't ask them about that anymore. But where those doubts were, go, basically. They will go somewhere. Over time, there could be a mountain of undigested doubts that are so mixed up that it will be hard to recognize at that point as such because they will be more morphing, so to say, into a monster that is at one point capable of devouring the whole faith uh, that the disciple thought I am protecting but not exposing myself, but not showing my lack of faith, but swallowing my doubts. So again, in the name, or more precisely in the guise of remaining faithful, sometimes we are going against, actually against that very faith by swallowing our doubts. So again, there is place for proper interaction, especially when something comes as unreasonable, whether it is unreasonable or it sounds unreasonable to us. So this teaching in Bhakti Natakur's words that I have, we have been sharing now, may seem shocking to some in comparison to many current understandings of the guru-disciple relationship. Why? Because Bhakti Thakur is saying here first, the disciple doesn't have to follow his guru under certain unreasonable conditions. Some people may not even consider that possibility. And two, that the guru may actually give instructions that are unreasonable for one reason or another, as I mentioned. So again, this is something that for many people is not considered as part of the picture. And what to speak then when Bhagna Thakur said about the student humbly reminding the guru about his conduct. <laughs> Again, these actions just don't seem to fit into the currently active conceptual framework of the guru-disciple relationship that many Gaudias entertain. Not all of them, and of course, that's not the core Gaudia teaching, but is there. So we need to address it. <laughs> so at the core of the instruction given here is the fact that the disciples maintain their own sense of self. You can lose yourself in an unhealthy way. 
you dedicate yourself, but not lose yourself or lose to find yourself. Lost and found, as they say, in proper way. But as a disciple, we have to maintain a self, a sense of self, an identity, inner guidance, and criteria, what develop our own intelligence, as we mentioned before, critical thinking, and that what they think and feel actually matters. What the disciple feels and thinks, it's important. And those things are to be considered by the guru, are not to be dismissed, are not to be downplayed, what to be, what to speak about, to be stigmatized. And the guru has to be humble enough to think of himself as student forever, as we already mentioned. Um, and in that way, and, and, and the way that the guru teaches and guides his students can always improve. If, if the guru feels I'm a student forever, means the way I'm trying to serve my disciples can always improve because I'm a student forever. So I'm open to that. And the guru is again open to hold himself accountable, even to his disciple, if that's necessary for the growth of both. Remember, as we talked last class, Guru-disciple relationship is a mutual collaboration, a joint project. Both of them are working together in the service of a higher mutual common cause. So whatever helps that project, both parts will be willing to do so, even acknowledging holding themselves accountable to each other. So in other words, <clears throat> by seeing the Guru as infallible and therefore never wrong, as we already mentioned, some people may think in a very extreme way, the disciple can easily disassociate from his own spiritual life and not take a very active participatory role in it, which is another way of saying impersonalism. I no longer a person. I no longer have my own thoughts and criteria and feelings. I just surrender, so to say, and away with lots of quotation marks. But in contrast, what Trila Bhaktanath Thakur speaks of here is a beautiful and mature guru-disciple relationship. Guru which is based not on fear, not on authoritarianism, not on celebrity consciousness, but on the free flow of faith and open-hearted exchange between the two. And with each part, guru-disciple equally committed to each other in their own ways, of course, from their own perspective, in service to the highest reach of the Bhakti project. Of course, in the case of a fully transcendental representative personifying the principle of Sri Guru, there may, no, there may be no need to of holding himself accountable to his disciple for some gross wrongdoings or extremely unreasonable instruction because being so high and properly situated, they won't commit that mistake. But that doesn't mean that we as disciples should conclude that, for example, my guru knows better than me about anything whatsoever. So like I can offer any type of correction. That may be too much about any single topic, any single area of knowledge. Even if the guru is a Mahabhagavat, he or she is a Uttam Uttam Mahabhagavat, it doesn't mean that that guru knows better than us about anything whatsoever in every possible realm of knowledge. Do you get my point? Of course, in terms of substantial inner experience, in connection to Bhakti, in those cases, that will be a totally different thing. Of course, there is a difference. But in other areas, this criterion is, may not be applicable. No, we shouldn't force that. Remember, the guru is not omniscient. It's not the guru knows more than us in every single field. For example, I remember, I don't know, correcting, quote-unquote, my former gurus by their own request <laughs> during lectures in terms of sometimes reminding them some verses that they could not remember during class uh, or about the thread of topics that they were being presented during Harikata and so on, some other examples like that. And the experience was always humbling 
for me. No, and one which increases my own position as a disciple, and never otherwise, fortunately. But yes, technically, one could say that I was correcting them, so to say. <laughs> for me, of course, for me and for everyone else present at those moments, those situations were another opportunity to be humbled again, not to become proud and to offer unconditionally loving seva, even if they took the form externally of so-called correction. Mm. So I don't know. And again, another example, among other things, a, a disciple may know more than their guru in, in some relative areas. For example, in terms of other languages, I'm, one may speak Chinese and the guru doesn't speak. It doesn't mean my guru knows Chinese better than me because he's my guru. No, he doesn't know. You know better than him Chinese, but that doesn't downplay his position as your guru hmm? or whatever, any other details, cultural information of your own birth, country of birth, whatever. But that does make us better, that your guru or higher than him in devotional standing. So similarly, in service to a sad guru, one may have to point at something that he or she said when that needs adjustment. That there's play again on some relative level. Like the famous example where Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur misspelled some words in English, and he and the devotees wanted to change the dictionary. <laughs> Because if Gurudev now pronounced the word this, it means that's divine revelation on the whole English dictionary must be adjusted. But Srila Siddha Maharaj, well, some praised that criterion. Srila Siddha Maharaj didn't like that. And he said, literally, I will share what he said. He said, this is the attitude of a neophyte, a Kanishta Adhikari. The higher disciple will contemplate what Guru will want and correct it so that his position will stand in public. Such correction is not offensive, but service of the highest quality. So he makes this very clear. Although externally it may seem you are correcting your guru, actually that's service of a deeper quality, properly done from with the proper attitude, of course. So therefore, whatever the case, as a genuine disciple, we are expected to be willing, as a genuine disciple is expected to be willing to hold himself accountable with his guru, ideally, or even with other peers or even with juniors, depending the case, in its own way, a guru will be also exemplarily willing to hold himself, herself accountable, not only with seniors and peers, but even if that's required with his own students in the form of a very affectionate back and forth and dialogue as to how to better increase the quality of the service that we can offer to Mahaprabhu and his Sampradaya through this sacred relationship between guru and disciple. So let's conclude with a last section of conclusion, as we used to do, just wrapping up, sharing some further thoughts before concluding. So we have analyzed till here some further possibilities of spiritual bypassing, like we did last class between guru and disciple Today, speaking more about celebrity consciousness and cultism and authoritarianism and different ways of holding ourselves accountable in those cases and trying to reflect basically on, <clears throat> on these possibilities and invoke some potential solutions in the context of radical personalism and how any relationship, especially this one, guru-disciple, should play itself out while both guru and disciple are allowing themselves to be fully individuals in divine service. We don't want to destroy individuality 
and all that it can be in that relationship. So I, I personally believe that in present times, the guru-sister connection, guru-disciple connection is still too hierarchical in most cases, uh, which easily lends itself to great exploitation of authority and power that many times contradict the very nature of this relationship of sweetness, of intimacy, of mutual service and confidence, humble service from both sides. Again, it's a circular relationship. Mutual collaboration is not a hierarchical, monarchical, pyramidal thing only. But still, we see a lot of, we mentioned toxic masculinity in full display in relationship to this topic. The tendencies for males to take positions of power and exploit them and fight tooth to tooth and nail, tooth and nail, the same English, to preserve them and so on. And then we have the complementary toxic tendency for followers who are over idealizing and lining up and granting endless privileges to their celebrities. So Gaudiya Sampradaya is not a cult in essence, but it can't end up being misrepresented as such in quite cultish ways. And especially, especially in how the guru-disciple relationship is conceived and expressed. So we are to pay close attention to that. As a disciple is naturally expected to go through a very enduring process in the service of his guru, that's his duty, the guru has also to reciprocate accordingly and not abused that enduring of the disciple, nor neglect that enduring, nor over-demand unhealthy enduring circumstances while the guru remains in a comfort zone. As the disciples endures, the guru has to endure and reciprocate accordingly, remember. It's a mutual reciprocal relationship. If Krishna himself adapts to each of his devotees so much, as we know, to the point of forgetting his own godhood, if the guru represents Krishna, again, how much the guru, how the guru won't be equally willing to such adaptation himself, herself. So as we mentioned, ideally, guru-disciple is a relationship of love. And love transforms people, transforms the involved parties. And both parties, guru-disciple, should then be willing to go through that transformation in their relationship in love, to adapt. And yes, as we mentioned, the role of the guru is to make the disciple uncomfortable, put him out of the comfort zone in a sacred way, to invoke new doubts, to nourish the student's faith. We already talked about that. While putting, again, the disciple out of the comfort zone where real learning can happen. But that say, the guru has to remain in that same area outside of the comfort zone and explore the depths of that fearlessly. And he has to be there even before expecting that from the disciple, you follow. You have to already be in that particular area before expecting others to show up in that particular area before you. So before concluding the class, let's share a closing disclaimer. I already mentioned that throughout the Guru Tattva series, but one more time, just in case. So despite all the things that we have said in this series on Guru Tattva in particular, many of which had to do with gurus not fully representing the divine principle of Guru Tattva, although that was not the only topic. We only already also talked about disciples being deviated and having to do their own part. Of course, we agree that despite all the chaos that still may be there 
in whatever our present Gaudiya community in terms of some situations between guru and disciple and so on. Despite all that, there is still the possibility of perfect representation in the form of a sad guru, truly genuine hmm? guru. Because if that wouldn't be the case, <laughs> then we will be basically saying that the whole Bhakti project is a hoax because no pure beings will be available to prove its ultimate efficacy. So that's not the idea here. We haven't shared this usually unexplored topics to damage anyone's faith in the Guru principle, nor to make us extremely cynical and to distrust every single person who is serving in that capacity. But we have shared these topics to nourish, hopefully, our discernment and to provide a stronger foundation to embrace the principle of divine representation, Guru Tattva, which is still coming to us in the form of Sri Guru. So today we have reached the end of our series, as I mentioned on Guru Tattva, so part of which uh, I will include in, in the book I'm writing at present. It may be one of the longest chapters. This has been one of the longest series of lectures about radical personalism. But there is so much to say that I don't know if I will be able to put everything in that single chapter. We may have to write another separate book eventually about this this issue uh, after the book I'm writing. Let's see. Let's see what, where all this converges. So thank you so much for your attention. We'll be concluding here. And as usual, we'll share some homework, which is let's try to reflect on some of the examples of spiritual bypassing we shared today that we may be still involving in, and what can we do? Let's reflect on what can we do to improve that particular situation. So next Tuesday, we'll start a new, in a new direction, but connected one after our Guru Tattu series. And the topic of next class will be called Divine Ignorance. We'll talk about this in two classes. And the first part will be about the topic of can faith be nourished? Hmm? By doubt, we already talked about that, but we will explore further this. Knowing through unknowing, learning through unlearning, and so on. And then again, here in connection to this topic on Guru Tattva, well, Guru Tattva is when, with Guru Tattva in place, we have tried to put that in place, and it's very crucial to have Guru Tattva in place because that will guarantee that we are properly learning everything else. So with Guru Tattva in place, we can then approach some other aspects of our practice, of our tradition. And the guru is generally connected to the idea of knowledge, giving knowing, knowledge, education. But part of the education that the guru will give also will be to, in the form of emphasizing the need to know through unknowing, to know through divine ignorance, as we'll see, to open ourselves to coexist with uncertainty, darkness, and healthy doubt. So we'll be talking about that next Tuesday, as well as the follow the next week as well. And thank you so much for your attention, time, presence internally. And see you next week. Shriman Mahaprabhu Kijai, Shri Gaudiya Sampradaya Kijai, Adinam Sankirtan Kijai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Kijai, Gaur Praman Haribo, Vancha Kalpatarubhyascha, Kripa Sindhupyai Vachapati Tanam Pavani Vyabhashnavibhyanamonama, Ananta Koti Vaishnava Vrinda Kijai. Gold Hadi Boom.